This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Consciousness Two World Views, recorded October 29th, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this uh, morning, we have a discussion based on a question that Peggy Robinson put in the question box. Uh, and let me read you the question. <coughs> we are taught here at the center that the individual self is an illusion. And then she gives an example from the introduction to Tantra, which is a Tibetan text by Lama Yeshe. And this is what Lama Yeshe says. <coughs> it is our habitual wrong view, our ignorant, insecure ego grasping that holds on to the hallucination of concrete self-existence as if it were reality. So in other words, what he's saying is that this idea that we have some sort of individual self that is a really a concrete reality is based on ignorance. It's false. It's a delusion. And Peggy's absolutely right. If you read to the mystics of other traditions, they say basically the same thing. But then she goes on. However, from the point of view of biology, individual consciousness and its emotions evolve because it is a great help to the survival of individual organisms. This view is expressed in the recent book by Antonio Damasio called The Feeling of What Happens, Body and Emotion in the Making of Consciousness. I would be happy to lend this book, she puts in print. Therefore, this is now Peggy talking, therefore, if God created the world, he, she, it, seems to have invested in individual survival of organisms which is strengthened by individual consciousness. So this is a, an excellent question. I did not take Peggy up on the offer to lend me the book because I didn't have time to read it. Uh, but I think that the question uh, itself raises a much deeper question, and that is about two very different worldviews, a mystical worldview and a materialist worldview. Now, let me say two things about these uh, worldviews. First of all, when I say mystical worldview, I'm not talking necessarily about a religious worldview. Uh, Christians have a worldview, and Islam has a worldview, and Jews have a worldview, and those are quite similar. They're usually lumped together as the Abrahamic traditions because they go back to Abraham. And then there's a Hindu and a Buddhist and a Taoist worldview and so forth. Worldviews as they are presented by the exoteric believers in these traditions. But if we search through the mystics of all these traditions, we can distill out certain common principles. And we call that the mystical worldview. Now, also, when I talk about a materialist worldview, it's not necessarily equated with a scientific worldview. It is true that for the uh, better part of the 18th and 19th centuries, science developed based on a materialist worldview. But in the 20th century, that's begun to change. And in fact, as, uh, we're not going to go into this this morning, but if you want to investigate it on your own, you'll find that modern physics actually does not support a materialist worldview, and in fact calls it into very serious questions. So, and, and modern physics continues to be science, so it's not necessarily based on a materialist worldview. But the materialist worldview, and especially a materialist-based science, is still 
what is taught in largely today in our schools, particularly in our high schools, uh, when kids take chemistry and physics and so forth. And it is also the worldview of the educated people in this country, by and large, even though they may have a private religious uh, belief system or whatever. Uh, but this is the worldview you get through magazines like Time Magazine or Newsweek when they talk about advances in science and technology and whatnot. There's just the assumption that materialism is the worldview of science. So whether uh, we uh, uh, choose it or not, we are constantly bombarded with this worldview. We get it through osmosis, through our culture, through the media and so forth. So just let me make clear what I'm talking about. So let's first describe then these two worldviews and see uh, how they are different or in some cases maybe similar. The materialist worldview holds that only matter and energy interacting in space and time are real. Everything can be reduced to matter and energy. That is truly the fundamental underlying reality of all this. Here's Richard Feynman a great American physicist, and here's what he says. If in some cataclysm all scientific knowledge were to be destroyed and only one sentence passed on to the next generations of creatures, what statement would contain the most information in the fewest words? I believe it is the atomic hypothesis that all things are made of atoms, little particles that move around in perpetual motion attracting each other when they are a little distance apart, but repelling upon being squeezed into one another. So he's giving you a nice, succinct statement of the materialist worldview, particularly an atomistic materialist worldview, which is what has been the worldview of modern science. Then materialism holds that these atoms exist objectively, out there, independent of any conscious observer. So in other words, when you aren't looking and when you aren't listening and so forth, the world is going on out there. When you drop dead, the world's going to go on. Before you were born, the world was going on. That's what objective existence means. It has nothing to do with whether you're looking at it, whether you're uh, of consciousness or anything like that. Albert Einstein gives this position. He says, the belief in an external world independent of perceiving subjects is the basis of all natural science. And then atoms are constitutive of all things, including living organisms and human beings. Everything is made up of these atoms, according to the materialist worldview. This actually uh, was first formulated back in the 18th century uh, during the European Enlightenment, which has nothing to do with mystical enlightenment, when the materialist worldview was forming. And this was given uh, a very succinct formulation by a French philosopher named La Maitre. And he wrote, Let us then conclude boldly that man is a machine and that the whole universe consists only of a single substance, matter, subject to different modifications. That's basically uh, put nicely. It hasn't changed. Materialists still believe the same thing after 300 years. Now, materialism from this concludes that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of matter. Epiphenomenon is a technical term means it isn't real. It's kind of an illusion. 
It somehow comes about, but it has no actual substance or reality. It's particularly an epiphenomena of the brain. And Carl Sagan, who was a very popular modern scientist and materialist, writes, My fundamental premise about the brain is that its workings, what we sometimes call mind, are a consequence of its anatomy and physiology and nothing more. Now, well, there is really no such thing as, as consciousness. The, the brain neurons firing and the chemistry going on in the brain create this kind of illusion of consciousness. And by the way, and this is something most people don't realize, this includes all the contents of consciousness. According to materialist point of view, you are living in a totally virtual reality. For instance, uh, color. Now, color appears in consciousness. We see red, green, and so forth. This is a, an illusion. Light, which is matter and energy, or energy, has no color. Light has uh, waves and frequencies and so forth. And we can correlate the colors we see with, with various uh, light waves, if indeed they're waves. There's some question about that. But there's no color out there in the world, truly speaking. This illusion of consciousness we have. Uh, sounds. We hear sounds, but from a materialist point of view, there's no such thing as sound. There are uh, waves moving through the atmosphere. So molecules are bobbing up and down, and then these waves bang onto our eardrum and they vibrate. But there's no actual sound out there in this independent, supposedly independent existing reality. Uh, taste, smells, and all that. Molecules do not have taste. This is something that appears in consciousness. And even sensations, a heat and cold, for instance, according to materialism, there's no such thing as heat. That's an illusion. What's really happening is little molecules are, are banging around very fast on your fingertips if you're touching something hot. And your consciousness translates that into the sensation of heat. But there's no such thing as heat or cold. Cold is just when the molecules are going slower. So everything that we are experiencing here, this is called secondary qualities. These are not qualities of matter. What exists out there is something very different. All that's existing, basically, are these little atoms, you know, bouncing around and banging into each other and interacting. It's a little more complicated than that. A modern philosopher gave an interesting uh, problem. He said, we really don't know if we are not some brain sitting in a vat in some scientist's laboratory hooked up to stimuli, you see, which is creating all this world for us. And we have no way of actually ever knowing that, do we? As long as the scientist was giving us the right stimulus at the right moment, we would be experiencing all this, but you might be a brain sitting in a vat someplace. How do we know you're not? And Hillary Putnam says, well, there is really no way we can know we're not. So, as a result of this, uh, materialists say, interestingly enough, there is no such thing as individual consciousness or a self. That's just part of this epiphenomena of consciousness. It's just another part of this illusion. The founder of behavioral psychology, B.F. Skinner, was perhaps most famous for putting this very bluntly. He believed it was just time to give up all this nonsense about an individual self. He says, the picture which emerges from a scientific analysis is not of a body with a person inside, but of a body which is a person in the sense that it displays a complex repertoire of behavior. So, in other words, we're like a biological robot.
there really is no person inside. And those of you who know Skinner's work is very interesting because he at least is logically consistent. He says, well, if this is true, let's give up all these ideas of responsibility and freedom and dignity and all this nonsense. Let's just admit the way we shape people's behavior is to reward them and punish them. And let's just set up a society where we reward people and punish them, just like a computer, you know, you punch an input and output and you'll get the right answers. But then there's a couple of problems with this worldview. One is, if this is true, materialists must explain how, and secondarily why, these purely biological robots develop this epiphenomenon of consciousness. Even if it isn't real, but where does it come from? And the most common answer is given by a reference to the theory of evolution. And that is that the uh, illusion of consciousness is the result of the neurological complexity of the brain. And so, therefore, uh, the more complex the brain, the more consciousness there is. So we think of little organisms, worms and stuff, have very minimal kind of consciousness. As the brain develops more complexly, we get more consciousness. And then this whole process serves an evolutionary function. As Peggy mentioned, this was uh, Antonio Damasio's position. So that it helps this robot survive. It has a better chance of adapting to its environment. But it's still, when you press materialists, this doesn't really hold water, or at least the, the explanation is not really fully there yet. Because I can imagine creating a totally complex biological robot, and I don't really need consciousness. What does it really add here? And how would that complexity produce consciousness? I mean, there's no cause and effect chain that we can actually see happen. So this is an interesting question in artificial intelligence today. Could a robot become conscious? What does it mean to be conscious? So to summarize the materialist position just quickly, only matter is ultimately real. Consciousness is an epiphenomena of the matter in our brains and consciousness evolves with the complexity of the organism. Those are just three of the basic, basic assumptions of materialist worldview. Now, what is a mystical worldview, or what does a mystical worldview say? Well, a mystical worldview holds that only consciousness is ultimately real. Exactly the opposite of the materialist worldview. Uh, as Dr. Wolf, uh, one of my teachers, said, consciousness is primary, self-existent, and constitutive of all things. It's primary. That is the fundamental reality is consciousness. It is self-existence. It didn't get created anywhere. It didn't come out of complex nature of the brain. It's always existed. It's the underlying reality. And it is constitutive of all things. That means all things are actually fundamentally made of consciousness. This is not a, a new position, uh, although Dr. Wolf lived in the last century. Lali Shwari, a 14th century Hindu mystic from the other end of the globe, wrote, the world is the play of the universal consciousness appearing as matter as well as conscious beings. That consciousness is Shiva. It is also you. So here's a nice statement of this, this mystical worldview. All this is nothing but consciousness. It's the play of consciousness. 
Material forms, in fact, are epiphenomena of consciousness, according to the mystical worldview. And we have to put material in quotes here because there is no actual material uh, matter, except as, as we're going to see an idea in our heads. But the forms that, that appear to us, the light, the, the sounds, the colors, the taste, the smells, all these are epiphenomena of consciousness. In other words, they are or forms of consciousness, maybe another way to put it. Here's what Huang Po says. He's a great Zen master. These mountains, these rivers, the whole world itself, together with the sun, moon, and stars, not one of them exists outside your minds. Outside the mind, there is nothing. The green hills which everywhere meet your gaze and that void sky you see glistening above the earth, not a hair's breadth of any of them exists outside the concepts you have formed for yourself. There's a very clear statement of this, uh, this mystical worldview. All of this stuff somehow is dependent on consciousness. It does not exist objectively out there someplace. And this includes specifically atoms. Here's a Tibetan master, Dilgo Kinsei, who somebody must have told him something about modern atomic theory. He says, there's... Hmm? Right. <laughs> yes, I them a lot, right? He says, there is nothing anywhere, not even a single atom, that has verifiable existence. As we're going to see, if you go look for atoms, you actually can't find them. And this includes time and space. Now, remember, in the materialist worldview, these atoms and energy and everything exists and interact within this framework of time and space. So time and space are actually fundamental to the materialist worldview, even though they're, they're kind of strange, not really matter. But Ibn Arabi, great Sufi, uh, Islamic Sufi, wrote, Time is an imaginary entity having no existence. It is denoted by the movements of the spheres, or those uh, objects occupying a place when the question when is asked. Space and time have no substantial existence. So he's saying that if we... Uh, look at the movement of the spheres, he means this was written in the 15th century, he means when we look at the uh, movement of the sun and the moon and so forth, then we talk about time as a way of describing that, or if we ask uh, where is something, then we can locate it by our, through our thought process of reference points and so forth, but it has, time and space has no independent existence beyond how we talk about it and think about it. Also, let me uh, mention here, when mystics say things are imaginary, this has a very precise meaning. It means that they do have a kind of existence, that they appear as thoughts or ideas or images in our minds, in the mental field of consciousness, as you like. So to say time is imaginary doesn't mean we don't think about time, we do. But it says time has no other existence other than in our imagination. So this is important that we, we understand this definition. So the mystical worldview holds that this consciousness, sometimes called Brahman, God, Buddha mind, and so forth, is indivisible, non-dual, without parts, can't be divided. It's a, a unitary, a one, but not a one that's separate from a multiplicity. It's a one, an all-inclusive one. Here's what Shankar, a great Hindu sage, wrote. The illumined seer, no Brahman, as the uttermost reality, infinite, absolute, without parts, pure consciousness. 
And here's Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic of the Middle Ages. If we will see things truly, they are strangers to everything that tolerates any distinction. They are intimates of the one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity and distinction. So again, this is a universal position of mystics of all these various traditions. Consciousness is non-dual. Therefore, and this is ironically the one point that the materialists and the mystics agree, there is no such thing as individual consciousness or an individual self. Consciousness can't be divided into individual things. There is only this consciousness, this non-dual consciousness is, is the fundamental ground of everything. So we already heard uh, Lama Yeshe talk about the self as being an hallucination. Shankar says of Brahman, its appearance as an individual soul is caused by the delusion of our understanding and has no reality. By its very nature, this appearance is unreal. When our delusion has been removed, it ceases to exist. Of course, this is the heart of what a mystical path is all about, is to dispel this delusion that we are some sort of individual entity, self, individual consciousness. And Ibn Arabi again says, both the self and the world are imaginary. Know that you are an imagination, as is all that you regard as other than yourself an imagination. So this whole idea that there is a self in here and a world out there, and that this somehow this distinction is real that divides us, he's saying it's just imaginary. It's just a thought, an idea we have. It has no ultimate reality. So the world that these mystics are talking about, by the way, includes, for instance, the world of evolution. So here we sit here, and if you've been reading about evolution, you have in your mind this picture of how everything evolved from a little bacteria in the sea and so forth and so on. And so that is the world of uh, materialist biology. And he's saying that's imaginary. Literally what he's saying, it exists in your mind. You sit there and you think about it, and sure enough, but it, it doesn't exist out there someplace. <clears throat> it's a story... A very ingenious story, by the way, but a story nonetheless. It can never become anything other than a story. So mystics agree with the materialists on this one point. Individual consciousness of the self is not real, but their reasons are very different. Materialists say the individual consciousness of the self is not real because consciousness itself is just an epiphenomena, an illusion of neurological material processes. And mystics say the reason is because consciousness is the reality and it's a non-dual reality. Now, it's important to understand that these two worldviews are incommensurate. That means they are logically irreconcilable. We cannot take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and put them together into a nice worldview uh, that will make logical sense. So, for instance, it would be like trying to take two incommensurate scientific paradigms, one is an earth-centered view of the world and the other is a sun-centered view, and put them together. They, they won't go together. You have to choose. Either the sun is the center or the earth is the center. Either consciousness is the ultimate reality or matter is the ultimate reality. So now we can ask which of these worldviews is right or which is more believable or, or whatever. And... A little digression here, mystics say, really, the only way to verify their worldview 
or better to say the reality to which it points ultimately is through your own realization, recognition, enlightenment, gnosis. A way of knowing that is not intellectual knowledge and is not even experiential knowledge, which is not even recognized in the materialist worldview. So mystics aren't saying we can prove their worldview through logic or our discussions. But if we use logic in our minds and we make an analysis, it may persuade us to give some uh, validity to this worldview and say, oh, Jesus, there may be something in it, and that might persuade us to undertake the kinds of spiritual practices that can lead us to a realization of this truth. So we are going now then to use our reason and make a little inquiry and ask some questions about the claims made by the mystics and by the materialists and see what we might discover. And by the way, a lot of people uh, attack mysticism and say, oh, it's irrational and, uh, you know, and whatnot. Mystics do say that ultimately, as I just said, the, the uh, way to verify their worldview transcends reason, transcends thought, transcends anything you can imagine, because all that is part of imagination. But that does not mean that mystics are irrational people and that they haven't used logic and reason. And some of the greatest ones, for instance, Plato, who was a mystic, was one of the founders of Western logic. And you can read Nargajuna, a great Buddhist philosopher, uh, Ibn Arabi. These people use logic just for this reason. Let's examine these other claims and let's examine the mystic's claim. And let's see which seems more probable, at least. So, let's some, ask some questions then. Uh, if it is true that all things are made of atoms, as Richard Feynman said, then uh, we can ask, has anyone ever seen an atom? And today we can even ask the question, has anyone ever seen a subatomic particle? Because really atoms are, are not themselves existent. They are just forms of subatomic particles coming together. Do you think anybody has ever seen one? No one has ever seen one subatomic particle. Do you know that? No, that's the truth. Subatomic particles are posited by physicists to explain their equations. So you have an equation. The equation predicts the probability of events happening. That's very impressive. That's great. Well, then, why? Well, there must be these little particles out there. That's the way physicists reason. It's imaginary. These subatomic particles are literally imaginary. And they are posited in order to explain why these equations work, in order to make contact with these equations to some sort of uh, theory beyond pure mathematics. Otherwise, you have to say the world is made of number, which actually Pythagoras did way back in Greece. And uh, Heisenberg, a uh, modern physicist, says, you know, he was probably right. The fundamental reality is, from quantum point of view, you could look at it as being made of numbers. But... This is what mystics mean by imaginary. Subatomic particles are imaginary. The whole idea of the world being made up of atoms is imaginary. It literally exists in our minds. No one has ever experienced it. Yeah. Yes. No, but sure. you're talking about seeing it with our eyes. That's pretty limited, our human eye. I mean, there are electron microscopes. We, we can see the results of the behavior of atoms. Yes, that's our projection. This is my point. <laughs> we see and we experience things and then we explain them by thinking there must be atoms out there that cause this. 
But what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. It just, <laughs> all it is to say, it remains in the realm of imagination. It is literally, literally an imaginary world. It is not a, an experiential world. But, but it's pretty, um, it takes a lot of hubris to say that only what's real is what our human senses. We're going to get to that. Hold that point. We're going to get to that. Okay. So, uh, we haven't seen any atoms. Okay. <laughs> then, is consciousness an epiphenomenon of the brain? We can investigate this. For instance, uh, how does the brain create this illusion? Uh, does anybody have any ideas? Has anybody read a good explanation or can think of a good explanation? How do we get something immaterial like consciousness out of matter? Or how do you define at what point of complexity this arises? There's a wonderful book I think we have in the library um, called Goidel Eschernbach. Who wrote that book? Does anybody remember? Hofstadter. Hofstadter. He goes in this whole business of tangled hierarchy. It is a wonderful mind-twisting book. But his conclusion is that somehow consciousness evolves out of matter. But he never actually comes down to explain how this happens. Just things get more complex. Okay, then... Uh, Ah, this is a really good one. Does consciousness appear in our brains, or do our brains appear in consciousness? Has any surgeon ever cut open a brain and seen consciousness? No, you can dissect the brain all you want. You're never going to find anything called consciousness. But brains certainly appear in consciousness. If I go into an operating room and, uh, and you know, look at some surgeon peeling open Bob's head there, I'll see a brain. Brains will appear in my consciousness. <laughs> what? Hopefully. Hopefully, yes. Well, that's an interesting thing, too, too. See, we always assume we have brains. We've never seen our brains. We don't know what we'd find. But this is, this is interesting. I mean, we're talking about now just using our own experience and trusting our own experience as the laboratory for truth here. And, you know, just because scientists are well-educated and, and good at mathematics doesn't mean they have a, a lock on truth. We can use our own lives and look and see. In point of fact, brains and everything else appear in consciousness, but we never find consciousness appearing out there anywhere, in anything. Is consciousness confined by time and space? According to a materialist point of view, see, consciousness evolves in a brain, and then this takes place in time and in space. So does consciousness evolve in time? What would that mean for consciousness to evolve, to evolve in time? Does consciousness get bigger as time goes on? I mean, does it, you know, like grow in volume? Does it change color? Or other attributes of consciousness, do they change? You know... I grow, and as I mean, as the organism Joel, and you know, when I'm young, I'm I can measure. I'm like you know, three feet tall, and then I get four feet tall, and five feet tall, and didn't quite make it to six, but now I'm going the other way slightly as I stoop. But yes. Well, okay, to me, there's absolutely no problem here. Okay, so everybody can rest easy. Um, That's good. <laughs> Uh, she mentioned hubris. You know, I, I think we are biological creatures, and we have certain, we'll call them biological characteristics, whether it's the ability to sense something or whatever else, movement. 
And the only tricky part, I think, about consciousness is that, unfortunately, there is a human consciousness. I appear to sit here and look at you and through light rays and blah, blah, blah. And we say, yeah, but there's another type of consciousness that's called the big, big kahuna consciousness. And everything comes out of that. But by everything coming out of that, that is everything. Everything that comes out of consciousness, okay. we said it that way verbally because we do Wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. Right. How does, you're not addressing the question. We're going to get to this, uh, this whole business. So is, no there, is there an individual <laughs> consciousness or big consciousness? But right now we just want to know, does consciousness evolve in time? What would it mean to say consciousness evolves? It would mean it had a beginning and an end. Well, that would mean, yes, it would have a beginning and end. That would one thing would mean. Has anybody ever experienced the beginning or end of consciousness? I think it evolves. It seems to evolve when you're, I mean, the consciousness that I have now is not the consciousness that I had when I was two. It isn't. How's it different? It's the same consciousness, but it seems to be, it includes a lot more. It includes a lot. Did it get bigger? I mean, like, yeah. how big was it when you were two? <laughs> well, you know, it's not very big. It's big enough to hold my parents and a kid down the block. Is that what, a mile long? Yeah. And now what is it, about 20 miles? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's earth size. It's larger. Yeah, but we have to specify this now, especially we want to think logically and scientifically here. Joel, are you talking about human consciousness? Any kind of consciousness you want. Why don't we use the word intellect versus consciousness, which is all encompassing? I mean, it's it's confusing using the same word. No, no, no. We want to use the same word because the claim is that a biologist, materialist biologist, that consciousness evolves. Not that intellect evolves, and then we'd have to define intellect. Intellect may evolve if we want to... Uh, define it as something like the ability to process information or something. But consciousness, awareness. If we want to talk about our thoughts or ideas evolving, we could say that. You know, my ideas have changed over time. We might talk about even our uh, likes and dislikes, emotions and stuff evolving. You know, I've talked about this many times. I hated asparagus when I was a kid. I love asparagus now. So there are things I can measure here that change. That's what evolve means. They have to change. But awareness, consciousness... How does that change, ever? In what way would it mean that consciousness evolves in time? It's kind of a meaningless statement when you really look at it. Yes. I mean, it has no meaning at all. Well, this is the point. This is what we're trying to inquire about. When, you know, we read these books, Consciousness Evolved in Time, but if you look into it, what does that mean? What are people talking about in the back there? Oh, I was just going to say, what simplifies it for me is... What I am aware of has changed with time, but my awareness, being aware, has never changed. Very good. That's what we're talking about, awareness. When we're talking about consciousness now, we're talking about awareness. We can go on to ask, does consciousness exist in time, or does time exist in consciousness? What is time? Ibn Arabi said it was imaginary. So, uh... What at times has the past and the future and the present. So has anybody ever experienced the past? We have memories of the past, but they take place in the present, don't they? How about the future? We have uh, imaginary scenarios about what's going to happen, 
But has anybody ever experienced the future? In, indeed, what's going on now? Is the, is the present turning into the past and the future is arriving? I mean, where where is that happening? See, I like to do this. We just did this on retreat. Here's a clock. It's, oh, this one's got nice. It's got a little, little second, digital second thing. See, but 10, just jump. 11, 12. What, what is actually happening? What is this measure? Is it measuring anything? Do you, as this moves, do you see the present turning into the past and the future coming or something? Yes. I, I think that time is an invention of our minds to explain impermanence. Or to keep track of it, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah. To just measure change, sort of. So this is, this is exactly Imanarabi's point. It's not that we don't think up time. You know, we invent clocks and we divide them up in towers and seconds and so forth and whatnot. But it, there's no time actually out there, some sort of self-existing thing. Well, then why do we age? Why do we age? No Good God, around. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because we get bored if we hung around too long. It's like clock. Aging is just like that clock. It's, it's an appearance that is there and changes in consciousness presently. Yes. Aging is no different than that clock. <laughs> Or anything. And right. our belief structure is such that we age. <laughs> you know, I find you can tamper with it. Well, uh, okay. You mean, I'm talking because about we identify with the body that's yes. aging? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's true. If we, if we in fact are these organisms and, and the consciousness is in them and we are them, then yes, we do age. If in fact we are not, if in fact we are this self-existent, primary existing consciousness, then, then bodies really age. age and so forth, but we don't really age. Exactly. And the concept of aging implies a past also, to have aged out of... Well, let's investigate. We remember a time when, I don't know, I could run a mile easily, right? Without my, my knee aching. So I remember that in the present. So I walk down to the mailbox and my arthritic knee starts to ache and then a memory pops up when I, you know, of myself. All this is going on in the present. This isn't going on in time. It creates a kind of illusion that there's time juxtaposing these experiences and ideas and so forth. But time actually, if we investigate it, exists in consciousness as an idea. But consciousness does not exist in time. Part of why I'm raising these questions is to spur you to go investigate on your own. I mean, this is what mystics have done. There are lots of books in the library, but you don't even need those books except maybe as a guide to ask more questions. But it's really worthwhile in your own life sitting down. And if you have any doubts about any of this, just go look and see what is the truth here. What are some other questions we can ask? Oh, okay, does consciousness exist in space? If consciousness exists in space, then it has some volume, some way of measuring that. Or does space exist in consciousness? And one of the one of the wonderful things you can do is you can go out on a clear, cloudless night and you can look up at the stars. Are the stars in consciousness? How far away are the stars supposed to be? If you, we want to think of that way, consciousness extends all the way out there. Consciousness includes all the space in between. 
In, indeed, space is another imaginary idea we have. There are ideas we cook up, and then we project them on the world. Okay, uh, <clears throat> is there even an objective world out there at all apart from consciousness? Has anybody ever experienced anything outside of consciousness? We can imagine things outside of consciousness. I can imagine the moon is up there now, someplace. But that's imagination. Even my cats, I imagine they're sleeping there in a the bedroom. I hope they are. I'm not peeping in the bedroom or something <laughs> nasty. But that's imagination. <clears throat> We construct in our minds, literally, a world out there, just the way a scientist explains the correlations of phenomena through, through saying, well, there must be atoms out there. We say, well, there must be you know, cars on the street and there must be these things. That's in our minds. It's literally an act of imagination. Now, ah, this is whole business of hubris. Materialists are fond of claiming that mystics are solipsists. That's the technical term for a philosophy that says only I and my consciousness exist. So all you people and all this, you're just appearing in my consciousness. I am the center of the world. I am the whole reality and so forth. But this is not true of mystics. And the reason is, is there is no I to have this consciousness. This comes back to there being no individual consciousness and no self. And when you talk about, well, there's the individual human conscious, and then there's the big kahuna conscious, that's not what mystics are saying. No, I agree. Okay. But I there's agree. only consciousness, non-dual consciousness. Now, you can look into this, and this is a very, uh, a very fundamental inquiry in mystical traditions. Who are you? If you think you are some ego, some soul, some jiva, that's the Hindu term for this, Go see if you can find it. And this is really well worth doing in a concentrated uh, fashion over a period of time because this, according to mystics, is the fundamental delusion. It's the cause of all our suffering. The other stuff is, uh, is interesting, but in a certain sense, incidental to our suffering. But if you investigate, this is what mystics say, you will see all the things in your experience you consider yourself. If you think you're your thoughts, then you watch your thoughts come and go. But what is the awareness or consciousness that is observing them? Does that come and go? So if I sit here and I, and I think of my mother's face, and then it passes, did I pass away with that? Well, if you do this for a while, you really convince yourself at an experiential level, you cannot be your thoughts. Are you your emotions? Which emotion are you? The anger you felt this morning because uh, you didn't uh, set your clock back. Uh, the joy you feel when you walk out on this beautiful fall day and see the light in the leaves. These emotions come and go. But do you come and go with these emotions? Even our body sensations, down to our each little sensation, the pain in my knee, the itch here, they come and go. They're all impermanent. Am I those things? 
This is uh, Ramana Maharshi, great mystic of the 20th century. Hindu mystic says, If one inquires, who am I? One will see there is no such thing as the I. The exact same inquiry is made in Buddhism. One of the reasons people do Vipassana, which is the style of Buddhism, where you become aware, minutely aware, moment by moment, of all the things that are rising, passing, in consciousness, is eventually you find this I that I thought I has, I, it's unfindable. I can never find it. The Tibetans have a wonderful analogy that points out the importance of actually doing this inquiry yourself. They say it's like a farmer who has a prize bull. And his neighbors come, and they tell him in the morning that thieves ran off with his bull at night. Now, it's not that he doesn't believe his neighbors, but he's so attached to this bull that until he goes and searches every nook and cranny of his property, will he truly be convinced the bull is gone. You see what I mean? It's through that, that inquiry, through that searching, that you really start to be convinced at an experiential level. There is no I here. And once you start to do that, actually you start to gain a lot of freedom. You start to recognize all these dramatic thoughts that evolve around, I'm going to lose this, and I, oh, I hope I get that, and all that. You recognize they're all built around some fictional character. So mystics are not solipsists because they, there is no I that is the center of the universe. There is no my consciousness. There's no my to have any consciousness. Everything that appears in consciousness, we might say, belongs to consciousness, but there's nothing that consciousness could belong to. So it's not a solipsistic view of things at all. Then, finally, somebody raised this. Is there more than one consciousness? Mystics claim it's non-dual. How many people have experienced more than one consciousness? Gee, I've never met anybody who's experienced more than one consciousness. Why do we assume there's more than one consciousness? Since it's all our experience, universal experience, there's only one consciousness. What would it even mean that there were more than one consciousness? I mean, where would the boundaries be? How do we distinguish one consciousness from another? Well, it seems a lot of times like your wife has a different consciousness. <laughs> Not to me. It seems like there are different emotions and different thoughts, some of them which are quite mysterious to me. But I'm fantasizing that it's a different Ah, well, you might imagine, yes. If you think you have a consciousness, then it's sort of logical to look over there and say, well, she must have a consciousness. If you go investigate and find out there is no you to have a consciousness, it, it makes less sense to project onto her having some consciousness. But again, we come down to this business of it's imaginary. Mystics don't deny that people don't imagine there are many individual consciousnesses. From a mystic's point of view, that is our problem. Or I should say, it's not our problem that we imagine it. Our problem is that we take our imagination to be real. We construct these worlds out of imagination which is wonderful, but then we take them to be real and then we have to live in them. And that's when the problem begins. That's why we suffer. If we could ask one final question here. Does consciousness exist at all? It doesn't have any attributes, doesn't have any color, doesn't have any dimensions. I mean, what does it mean to say it exists? <clears throat> I think there are two answers. First of all, there is the intuitive answer. And there have been people who claim that consciousness does not exist in any form whatsoever, even as an epiphenomenon or whatever, that it's just a, a semantic trick. 
uh, I, all I can say for my part is I find it really hard to imagine myself as an unconscious robot. It just, it doesn't click. So at that level, there's a certain intuition about consciousness, we might say. Freud defined as consciousness the one thing we all know exists, but we can never define. That's not bad. But mystics say, actually, ultimately, there are two answers to this uh, question, yes and no. If we mean this consciousness exists in the technical meaning and the, uh, the root etymological meaning of exist, which means to stand out, then it does not exist. It is not manifested. It is not a form. It is not a thing. It is not anything we will ever go find and point to and be able to delineate and name and say, this is consciousness. <clears throat> this is why in the Hindu tradition they say, neti neti, not this, not that. Consciousness, whatever you can point to, is not that. This is why in Sufism they say, if you want to find Allah, whatever presents itself to you and says, I am Allah, you say, no, you are through Allah, but you are not Allah. Do not stop with anything, anything, no matter how subtle, no matter how uh, beautiful, no matter how noble that appears to you, is not consciousness. But if we say consciousness, if we mean exist in the sense of real, the fundamental, unchanging, unborn, undying uh, reality, the no thing out of which all these things appear and to which they return, then mystics say, yes, it is real. And this is the part of mysticism that you have to verify yourself. This is the mystery part. This is the part the mind will not uh, uh, reach. This is the part we have to go beyond the mind and discover this because it's who you are. It's not a thing. So it's often called knowledge through identity. It's, a, it's consciousness realizes itself. But mystics say that there is a way you can verify this. It's not just the question of logic. It's not just the question, well, it seems logical that there would be atoms out there and so forth. There's a direct way you can verify it, which makes it different from all other uh, worldviews. Any worldview that says you can verify it in this way is uh, almost uh, ipso facto a mystical worldview. Now, finally, materialists say, and this is a good argument, that we should believe in materialism because materialist science works. And there's no question, in a, in a certain sense, it works uh, in, in ways that are both magnificent and terrifying. We think of nuclear energy, nuclear bombs and so forth. We think of advances in medicine. I mean, I, I always appreciate the Novocaine when I go to the dentist office. You know, I think, oh, gee, if I was born 200 years ago, <laughs> they give me a bottle of rum and a pair of pliers, you know. <laughs> so it's, it does work. But we got to be very careful because... We can say it's very useful, but we should not confuse the fact that a theory works with its being in any sense ultimately true. And a very good example of this is to look at Ptolemy's Earth-centered astronomy. This was the astronomy before Copernicus that was held universally to be the truth about the world. That the Earth was the center of the universe the moon went around the earth, the sun went around the earth, the planets all went around the earth, each revolving on these spheres in the West anyway is conceived, and then finally the great outer sphere of the turning. It worked. Magellan, Ferdinand Magellan, who was a great sea captain, came just shortly after Columbus, sailed around the globe using Ptolemaic astronomy and a compass and a timepiece. 
Today, I, I can sail all over this globe and I can still believe in that the Earth is the center of the universe. It'll work like gangbusters. And I'm using the stars, you know, I'm shooting the stars and taking their distance from the horizon, all that stuff, it works wonderfully. So just because a theory works does not mean it's ultimately true in any sense. Mystics say all theories are imaginary. I don't care if they're scientific theories, literary theories, psychological theories, evolutionary theories, most importantly, personal theories you have. We might call personal dramas about your life, who you are, where you came from, all your problems and all that. They're all imaginary. They never cannot be imaginary. It's like images on a movie screen. They're all made of light. They're wonderful and they tell these stories and all that, but they cannot get off that screen and become real. Well, these thoughts cannot jump out of our heads and ever become real. They exist in the realm of imagination only. So we can say, you know, what's relatively true, you know, is it true that uh, I've got a cold or not? And that is relative truth. It's relative to the criteria we set up in a particular time and place for what we're going to consider true or not. But that's the only kind of truth it has. It has no ultimate truth. And maybe uh, we can get some last idea of this by just trying to imagine what sort of world Magellan lived in standing on the deck of his ship out there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And this was the world that he took to be absolutely real. He looked out there and he looked out at the night sky and he looked up at the stars. He saw the sun going down over the horizon. The sun is moving around the earth. He saw the next level of heaven as the moon comes up. Then he saw some planets in the sky. And in fact, as he looked up and he saw the the whole starry heaven, he saw nine spheres in his mind's eye. And this is how they conceived it. The, the planets were on these, attached to these crystalline clear spheres, and they all moved and, you know, concentric, one sphere within the other sphere within the other sphere. And then he looked around, and all the stuff here was made of four things, earth, air, fire, and water. No atoms, things were combinations of earth, air, fire, and water. I mean, physical things. These were the building blocks of this universe. Then he saw things moving, shooting stars. They, they're guided by intelligences, angels, spirits. Because they knew, you see, I move, so I have a spirit. So anything that moves out there must be moved by an intelligence, a spirit. So this is a world alive with spiritual energy, we might say. Because all this is arranged and organized by a supreme master designer, because obviously somebody had to think up this magnificent structure. It's also a world of angels where this master designer sends down messengers. It's also a world of devils and demons playing tricks on you, trying to get you to commit sins and stuff. Now, this was a very logical world in their, you know, in their day and age. It was the most advanced Aristotelian worldview known. They looked at primitive peoples that Magellan met on his trips that worshipped idols and things like that, and they said, this is superstition, it's imaginary. There are no gods in those idols. They knew reality the way it was. And it was through logic. Aristotle was a great logician. It's easy for us to look back today and say, oh, that's imaginary, isn't it? Really? 
almost everything in there is imaginary by our lights. The Earth really isn't the center of the universe. Uh, there aren't little spirits guiding things moving around. Things aren't really made of earth, air, water, and fire. They're made of atoms. You know, those poor people back there. Magellan was living just in a totally imaginary world. Of course, we feel we have arrived. Now we know the truth. Evolution, atoms, and so forth. The history of science tells us that whatever is true today is going to be false tomorrow. So let us not be attached to these imaginary worlds. Let us be very wary of this. Now, let me just say that I find science beautiful. I love science. I love to read about science. It's elegant. It's precise. I can't do the mathematics, but I can appreciate the mathematics of it. And it's very useful. As I always say, you know, my car breaks down, I take it to the, the mechanic. I don't take it to the shaman. Although lately, with new cars, I know maybe a shaman would do a better job. <laughs> but, uh, but it is imaginary. This is the whole point. It's not that we shouldn't appreciate it. But let us not be deceived. Let us not be fooled. Let us look into our lives. We are the laboratory in which we will find the truth. And let us not be afraid to ask stupid questions like, is consciousness in brains or brains in consciousness? Just because some PhD or professor wrote a whole book about the evolution of consciousness. Now, even evolutionary theory is interesting and, uh, and quite ingenious. And I'm not trying to knock evolutionary theory per se. It's still imaginary now. The one thing that, that mystics object to materialism is in materialism, there is no exit. This is your world and there's no way out. Other worldviews, not even necessarily mystical worldviews, but spiritual worldviews, sacred worldviews, have a way out. I mean, at least there is a God. At least it is possible to know that God in a deeper way. And it leads, uh, a path leads out to what is beyond all worldviews, all imagination, all thought. So in that sense, yes, mystics criticize materialism, not because it is false, it's no more false than a mystical worldview, but they serve different purposes. And materialism, you cannot get out through materialism, through a mystical worldview, will lead you out. So you see that even the mystical worldview is itself imaginary. Mm -hmm. That's why Buddha said when you... Uh, when you cross to the other shore, he, he compared his teachings to a raft. When you cross the other shore, you throw the raft away. You don't need the raft anymore. And he said of his own teachings, and mystics always say this, our teachings themselves are limited, can't communicate the truth. They're only fingers pointing to the moon. So, that's my little talk this morning, inspired by... Peggy's question. I hope it was illuminating for you, Peggy. But I wanted them to be reconciled. <laughs> <laughs> it was very illuminating. <laughs> Actually, you see, now this is interesting. I think that uh, there are parts of evolutionary theory that could be quite conducive to a future mystical worldview. Not the part about consciousness evolving as an epiphenomenon of the brain. But, you know, I think it's wonderful, the idea that these organisms all evolve from one organism. It means we're all cousins, you know what I mean? I mean, in terms of our being able to see each other as branches of the same family, this is a beautiful idea, do you know? And also the whole idea that we spread out over this planet and lost track of each other, and now with the globalization, it's like we're meeting long-lost relatives. 
you know, who've been gone for thousands of years. And they've, they're strange. They've learned new customs and so forth. But underneath, we say, oh, gee, you know, hi, cousin. Hi, Aunt Tilly. Or, you know, Aunt Utuoying, or whatever her name is. <laughs> so there are, there's a beauty to this kind of idea that certainly could be incorporated into a mystically-based worldview. A mystically-based worldview will be a worldview that says, look, underneath everything is consciousness. That's what a mystical, a future mystical worldview will be. And science will be understandable within the context of that. We will see how consciousness creates these mathematical equations. We will see how it correlates uh, events and phenomena. We, we're not going to give up science at all. We're going to have better science because nobody's going to be stuck on some old theory they have to try to fit uh, new phenomena into. Before the quantum breakthrough, people were trying to cram these new experiments into the old materialist box. They would not fit. And they finally had to throw out some very fundamental ideas about the universe in order, in order to come up with quantum mechanics. This it becomes much easier when we recognize it's all imaginary. We don't, we're not invested in, in one thing or another. Yes, Bob. I, uh, I got off of that merry-go-round a while back, but I still like to read about it. You know? And there's an irony, sort of a divine humor involved in it. But if you go down, you mentioned super string theory, if you're looking at infinity that way, you, you know, now super strings, but then what's beyond super strings? And in this same magazine, I had another article that said, it made a statement that struck me, and it said, um, since stars are not the building blocks of the universe, galaxies are the building blocks of the universe. So, go either way, we're not going to get there. Well, this is the point. You pick your reference point. Dr. Wolf talked about a shift in the base of reference, and he uses the example between the Ptolemaic astronomy and Copernican astronomy. The fundamental thing that happened there was a shift in the base of reference that the Ptolemaic astronomers had just assumed the Earth was the center. And Copernicus said, well, we lay all this out mathematically, and they were trying to solve, everything was wonderful except for these planets, you know, would suddenly go backwards in the sky, and then that was a big headache. So if we lay it all out mathematically, and let's just say, but supposing we take the sun to be the center, the mathematics is much more beautiful. It was a choice, you see, in imagination. How do you want to look at it? In those days, that was the only thing it had going for it, by the way. It was more beautiful. Because there was a lot of stuff that could not be explained, and the, the people, the reason people originally objected had nothing to do with the church or dog or anything. It had to do with the fact like, in order for this to work, the earth had to be spinning on its axis, so you could account for day and night. Well, everybody knows if you take a potter's wheel and you put something on it and you spin it, it flies off. So how come people weren't flying off the earth? It was total nonsense, just by our common sense. Do you know what I mean? And in fact, it was to Copernicus and, this, and the people who followed him, it was to their credit that they went by the beauty of the mathematics even over the, uh, the evidence of their senses at the time. And eventually then they developed theories like gravity to explain why we didn't. But which gravity? Now, is it because some force or because of the shape of space or there gravitrons? I mean, we don't know. You see, that's the point. We keep thinking up these things, projecting them out there to explain the phenomena. But they keep changing. Okay, I'm going to start a little, a little thing I just said. Uh, about a year ago, just something I read, it was Lyle Sue who said, uh, until it is cut, there are no names. Right. Okay. So I, I just sit here and I posit one statement. 
There is only everything. It's my statement. Thank you. There is only, I mean, every word where I'm squishing this down, you know, nothing is wasted, hopefully, here. There is only everything. Well, then, does that mean everything comes out of consciousness? Or is everybody? There is only everything. Good. Now you can stop thinking. Ah, then you'll be on the then you'll be on the right path. Now thinking has exhausted itself. Stop thinking and start looking directly. Did I even answer your statement where you start by thinking and not thinking? I say there is only a. Uh, if that brings your mind to a halt, then I completely applaud it. It wouldn't bring most people's mind to a halt. But I don't think. that statement then becomes the, his reference point. No, if he stops thinking, then it'll do the I job. Know, but... <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> yeah. Doctor Wolf described. He said, you know, he was uh, he used reason and logic as his primary path, but the way it served him was it brought him to the point where he could, was convinced that the mystical worldview was logically true, and so there was nothing more for his mind to do. So it stopped, hmm. and in that space of stopping is when realization happened. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close here? And uh, if anybody wants to chat about it more, we can. But at least I hope you go off with something to ponder. And until we see you again, peace to you all.